This is Just the Right Book, and I am Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. I hope to bring to you some of the very best nonfiction authors, conversations you want to hear about the books you want to read. The name Mankiewicz is legendary uh, in the movie business. It's not easy to write about two towering writer-director-producer brothers— of 20th century Hollywood. Not easy to do this and have them be your relatives. Not easy to then integrate your own career as a writer, director, producer. But Nick Davis has managed to do all of that. His new book, Competing with Idiots, Herman and Joe Mankiewicz, a dual portrait, is the result of these confluence of challenges. Herman was his grandfather. Joe is great uncle. There is the family lore, and then there is the Hollywood lore. Nick brings a wise eye to the integration, helping us rethink legacies that are both public and private. Nick has produced and written and uh, Nick has produced, written and directed a slew of TV series and documentaries, including his latest four-part series for ESPN titled Once Upon a Time in Queens about the 1986 Mets. Nick, it is my pleasure to welcome you to Just the Right Book. Thank you, Roxanne. It's great to be here. So we should tell everybody so that they're not, that, you know, that we're disclosing everything, that we're friends. We we know each other. We know each other. Yeah. So if, if I seem unusually flattering of you, people should understand that that's related to the relationship. <laughs> it's okay. Okay, good. Yeah, good. All right, good. So, you know, there's a very public notion of Herman... And Joe Mankiewicz. And just so that we sort of like lay the groundwork, describe how would they be described publicly? Well, that's an interesting question uh, to ask me because I grew up with a different notion of who they were. Exactly. But we're going to start. So publicly, uh, Herman was a larger than life screenwriter who uh, was one of the funniest and wittiest and smartest men around and one of the first wave of screenwriters out to Hollywood from New York City where he'd been a journalist and member of the Algonquin Roundtable and wrote for The New Yorker and then became a a highly paid uh, screenwriter in Hollywood but kind of famously um, Mm self-destructive and, uh, you know, lived a, a short, full life drinking himself into an early grave at the age of 55. His younger brother, Joe, uh, 11 and a half years younger, uh, came out to Hollywood uh, just a few years after Herman um, and and had a sort of steady, ultimately, uh, I don't want to say meteoric, but it was a steady rise to success at the top of the Hollywood game. First, he, as uh, he was told by uh, Louis B. Mayer, you have to walk before you can run. Uh, he was a producer and produced a number of very well-known movies like Philadelphia Story and Fury and Woman of the Year. Then became a writer-director, and his towering achievement was All About Eve. But he had a number of other very successful movies in the 50s and 40s and 60s um, until Cleopatra, which sort of was a, a turning point in his career in a not-great way. Uh, but he ended on a on a high note uh, with the movie Sleuth in 1972, uh, for which he liked to joke, uh, his entire cast was nominated for Academy Awards, both Michael Caine and yeah, Lawrence Olivier. Yeah, there were two people, Yeah, right? two people in the movie. <laughs> um, so that publicly was who Herman and Joe were. And right. if, if you were 
say, a young kid in New York City in the 70s and you went into a bookstore and you flipped to the back of a movie book, Joe had a lot more pages on more his credits. Uh, more credits and more more mentions in the back of the book than Herman, who usually had three or four mentions in the back of the book. Um, so so that's who they were publicly. Yeah, and is my notion that Herman was the more dominant name? I mean, because I'm not I wouldn't consider myself a film buff, but somehow even before I knew you and and John Mankiewicz, Herman was the name that I thought of because somehow Citizen Kane... Well, Citizen Kane was such a towering achievement. And in the early 70s, Pauline Kael wrote uh, an essay that became a book, Raising Kane, Mm -hmm. that resurrected Herman's reputation. I would say until then... He was more of, a, of an, a, a, an afterthought for most Hollywood history. But she resurrected him and maybe, no and said, hey, no, you know, everyone gives Orson Welles all the credit, but here's the guy who wrote the screenplay. And that became very controversial. He, maybe Herman didn't write all of it. And, and, and then it became the basis of last year's David Fincher movie. Right. So Herman has now, I would say, I mean, somebody should check those Google things where any Like who searches are, how many? Yeah, and, and, and see who is getting searched oh, for more. we should more. do that now. Yeah. But, um, but I would say that, that Herman's reputation has gone up just in terms of, of name recognition. Yeah. Um, but, but Joe had a... F- you know, an, he had a bigger um, portfolio, a, a much bigger, much more ultimately more successful career, and in a family that cared a lot about success, uh, that that mattered for a lot, at, at least in Joe's mind, um, and 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 sort of you know that dictated the terms of their relationship in a lot of ways. But now, now let's get to the family part. Right. right? So, so how did Herman and Joe well, loom in the family? Well, in the family, at least on Herman's side, and my mother was Herman's daughter. Right. Um, so when I was growing up, Herman was the guy. He was the funniest man who ever lived, the smartest man who ever lived. He was incredibly warm and deeply compassionate, but also a hilarious screw-up and, you know, doomed but in a fascinating way and, yeah. and drank himself into an early grave. But, oh, by the way, because he thought all the work was beneath him, uh, he wrote the greatest movie of all time, Citizen Kane. So that's Herman, and he died 12 years before I was born. Yeah. So that that was the guy. That was the hero in, in my mind. So he did Citizen Kane in... What year? 1940. 1940. And he died in 53, right? Yeah, he died in 53. Okay. And and there was a a sort of graceful decline uh, in Herman's career from the sort of peak when he first got out to Hollywood in 26. Where he was like a wonderkind. He was a wonderkind and he was, you know, making more money than anybody and gambling it all away and and a lot of boom and bust and, and, and all that. And then eventually fired from nearly every studio. Um, and there's the great line where he was fired from one studio and they said, not only are you fired from here, we're going to make sure you never work at any studio in town. And he said, promises, promises. <laughs> I, know. I love that. I saw that in the book. <laughs> That's one of my favorites. But um, but then he just, you know, he, 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 he thought that movies were crap. And, and so the work was beneath him and he should have been doing something else, but he wasn't sure what. Mm. And he, um, the, the money was so good and the weather was so nice that he just stayed out there. Joe took it all very seriously. He Joe, was a good dog. 
Yeah. And he, he thought, no, Hollywood is, is it's great. And movies are the art form, the dominant art form of the 20th century. And I'm going to study them and learn how to be good at it. And uh, as Herman is going down, a, a, a decline that somehow was not really altered by Citizen Kane in the middle of it, uh, Joe was, was on his ascent. And the two men sort of crossed paths. Uh, and the little brother, who Herman routinely derided as my idiot brother, mm-hmm. passed him. Um, and and so that that's sort of what happened. But so in and in my family, I mean, when I was a kid, uh, you know, Joe was um, well, he was responsible for Cleopatra, the biggest bomb in Hollywood history. And he nearly yeah. sank a studio. And and so there was like shame attached to him in, in my young mind. Yeah. Um, if no one else's. And and so and then for a long time, he wasn't writing and he had this 20 year case of writer's block after Sleuth. And so there was sort of like, well, Herman was great, but Joe wasn't. And and that's a very cartoonish view of two very complicated men. But that's what I grew up with until I started investigating who they really were. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. I want a vacation that can make the fun happen. For me, the best parts of a vacation are the ones that surprise you. I call those fun expected moments, and I get those from FunJet Vacations. FunJet Vacations offers vacation packages to your favorite destinations, such as Mexico, the Caribbean, Florida, Hawaii, and more. For over 45 years, they've delivered friendly, reliable service so you can focus on the fun. Right now, you can use promo code FJ50 to save $50 on your next FunJet vacation. Get more moments that are fun expected. Surprise yourself at Dreams Resorts and Spas by AMR Collection at funjet.com or call your local travel advisor. Restrictions apply. You know, to indulge in pop psychology, uh, there were two defining things about them. One is Franz, their father, um, who was you know, unloving, high expectations, you know, the classic line that you talk about, you know, one of the kids got a 97 and Franz wanted to know what happened to the three points. And and then Herman and Joe became fiercely competitive, right? I think at a, at, there was a moment when they became fiercely competitive. Initially, you Herman know, Herman was so way, he paved was, the way. Yeah, right. Herman paved the way, and when Joe wasn't sure what he wanted to do after college, Herman said, "For Christ's sake, come to Hollywood! Like, come on, this is easy money and it's fun." And and so Joe came out there, and I think gradually Herman started to realize, "Wait a minute." This guy, first of all, he's not letting me borrow money anymore. Like when he was first there, Herman was just borrowing money from his little pisher of a brother. Because Herman was gambling constantly. Constantly. And thought that whatever the little brother had belongs to the older brother. Um, And and so they – they, I think Herman gradually realized, wait a minute. This guy is really ambitious and and I – and Herman didn't like – he didn't like the town, and he didn't like the people he was competing with. I mean, the title of the book, Competing yeah. with Idiots, comes from this famous telegram 
that Herman sent to his friend Ben Hecht when he first got out to Hollywood. And it said, you know, will you accept 300 per week to come out to Paramount Pictures? Uh, uh, you know, there's millions to be grabbed out here and your only competition is idiots. Don't let this get around. Knowing that that would start the flood of New Yorkers out to Hollywood yeah. to make easy money. And the first wave of the screenwriters didn't take any of it very seriously. But the second wave, and Joe was a part of part this, of that. sort of was like, well, wait a minute. This could be an actual life and career, not like my good work is the stage or, or novels or journalism or something. No, this will be my career and I'll be great at it and do and, and take it seriously. So... Herman didn't like those people, and Joe was yeah. one of them. Well, and one of the things that was um, striking to me, and I'll, I'll I'll jump ahead a little bit, is the degree to which Herman had disdain and considered himself superior. You know, and there were some, you know, the some of the witticisms are worth the price of admission. Um, to the book, but the disdain and the fact that they that Herman continued to do it, and Joe continued to do it. Am I reading too much into it that that took a toll on them? That that was that they well, felt certainly... that they never became the writer for the New York. You know, at one point, your grandfather thought he'd be the critic for the New Yorker right, when right. somebody retired or. Right. Do you think that took a toll on them? Yeah, absolutely. Herman always felt uh, uncomfortable in his own skin and wanted mm -hmm. to be somewhere else. He, he thought, I should be back in New York. I mean, there's a great line when he comes and visits New York in the late 30s, sort of maybe planning a return, where he says, oh, to be back in Hollywood, wishing I were back in New York. Like, he, it, there was just this feeling like he wasn't where he should be. He should be writing a novel. He should be a Walter Lippmann-type political yeah. columnist. And, and, and he never escaped. He was trapped there and because the money was too good. And, and, and maybe he just couldn't make peace with the fact that this is – he was really good at it. He was a really terrific screenwriter. Not yeah. everybody can write Citizen Kane. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, he never kind of ac accepted that that was going to be his path. Or worthy. Yeah, or that that was a worthy path. Because Franz, yeah. as you said, you know, their father, Franz, a stern German An immigrant, academic. academic, disciplinarian. I think, you know, somewhat typical for the time, would never tell his children that he loved them, uh, even though I think he did. And, um, you know, you can't live up to that man's standards, so you're not even going to try. I think Joe did kind of escape. I mean, Joe got out of Hollywood and moved to New York mm -hmm. and after the success of All About Eve and the previous year, uh, Letter to Three Wives. He won Oscars for writing and directing two consecutive years, which nobody is ever going to break. Maybe somebody will tie it, but it's yeah. not, not going to be broken. And... Um, and I think that, that – so Joe got back to New York, and he did think, yeah, I've got to write a play now. But why? I mean, these guys – And he so never did. No, he never really did. <laughs> he know? never did. No, he never did. So, and, Nick, the other thing that was – you know, there was a scene uh, in the book. There's a couple of parts that I could read about the difference between Herman and Joe. But when Franz retired, moved out to – uh, L.A., and shortly thereafter became very ill and was dying. 
I found the scene um, with Herman's reaction to Franz's dying and death and Joe to have epitomized the difference between them, despite Herman's self-destructiveness and Joe's industriousness. Mm. So describe what that was like. Well, uh, yeah, Franz came out for a visit and and had a stroke and was in the hospital for, uh, uh, I think, a week. Um, and during that week, Herman was by his bedside all the time. Now, part of that, as my grandmother pointed out, is that he didn't want to go to work, you know, so he'd rather be. <laughs> oh, I don't want to hear no, that. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I think that's true. And and I think Sarah was making that up. No, but I, I look and he, he loved his dad and he wanted to be there for him. And he mm-hmm. held his hand and, and talked to him endlessly and 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 was with him. And Joe came once uh, and stayed for half an hour and had a visit and, and left. And, you know, you could look at that and think, gee, that's so cold on Joe's part. But interestingly, my cousin Ben Mankiewicz, also a member of the Klan, right. uh, looks at that scene and thinks, yeah, but you know what? He wasn't going to get anything from his father. And he'd already made peace with the fact that his father was an unloving jerk to him. So why try? And, and, and therefore, Joe, had, he had work to do. So he got back to the office. And it's not, it's not what I, when I first got to that scene, I thought, oh, so cold on Joe's part. But I think there's something uh, in some ways perhaps more evolved than trying to get blood from a stone, which is what Herman was doing. Like, oh, Pop, I love you, Papa. You're not going to get it. You're not going to get some kind of emotional catharsis closure from Franz Mankiewicz. But Herman, despite his self-destructiveness, was a mushpot. He was a mush pot, yes, if I, I if I understand that word. I don't think he I don't was, think he Herman... had a huge heart yeah. and was so loving and and a, a screw up, but you forgave him for everything. And you know, one of the incredible things just for me as a person was I got to listen to an interview my mother did, uh, and my mother passed away when I was nine. So I know. obviously that is tied up in in the germination. We'll of this get book. to this. Yeah, yeah. But so I listened to my mom try and describe. To uh, her, to Herman's first biographer, Richard Merriman, on on a tape in the seventies, she's talking about like it, none of the facts would make you think this was a great dad. You know, he gambled, he was mm-hmm. embarrassing, he belched, he farted, he threw he up, threw up. <laughs> Maybe she didn't see him throw up, but I mean, he he, he was just sort of a mess. Probably and, she did. Yeah, he came to you know the the basketball game with a transistor radio because he had a lot of money on the Kentucky Derby. I mean, this is not who you want as a father, but somehow, she says, you forgave him for mm-hmm. it. And so and she says, this is what you can't get at. You know, you can't get at this. But somehow his humanity was so huge and real that, he, he, you know, his actions were not those of a mensch, but his heart was. And and Joe did not give that uh, sense to him. Yeah, so, so speaking of Joe, I was struck by the dichotomy that you talk about in the book, that Joe had this capacity to spot a troubled actress. Um, We could talk about Judy Garland. He developed a reputation for listening to them and being there for them in a way that made them devoted to him, yet he was generally disliked. Yeah, he was more disliked in some ways by his 
family <laughs> than oh, he than was. the industry. The, the industry respected him, and the, his actors really liked him, and, and he was great with actors. And I think he was, he was a tremendously good listener for a, a director yeah. and, and, and gave his actors and actresses a feeling that he was there for them. There's no rush. You know, he wasn't somebody who yelled, action! You know, he was like, whenever you're ready. You know, it, it, he got them comfortable, and he was incredibly sensitive. I mean, his screenplays are so sensitive and so psychologically astute right. that it's it's not fair to say, oh, he was mean and cold. Like, his family, in particular, his two sons uh, in, in the 40s and 50s. Chris and Tom. Chris and Tom you know, didn't feel like he was really ever listening to them. Now, Tom made his peace with it much more than than Chris and and joined his father on movie sets and stuff and eventually became a very successful screenwriter in his own right. But but Joe didn't give the feeling in a personal relationship so much that he was really listening and interested in you unless you were interested in him and his career or whatever. I think I think he was generally decently liked in the industry and agents and producers and those people liked him. Although every once in a while you come across a story where his in ambition just shines through in yeah. such a shocking way that, you know, Billy Wilder backstage at, at the Academy Awards, you know, was famously chatting with him. And they were just, gosh, Billy, even to be included in the company of, of you and these people is so great. They've both been nominated that year, Billy Wilder for Sunset Boulevard. And, and then they call Joe's name to win the award. And it, he just shoots by Billy Wilder, like yeah. cuts him off with, and, with, with no, no like, regard, no regard and no sort of like, oh, this is awkward. Excuse me. I got to go get the award. I mean, and and Billy Wilder was like, I, I had never seen anything like that naked ambition before, which makes you think, well, did you never see All About Eve? Because that's a portrait of it. And, and part of what is so chilling and great about that movie is how ambition is so incarnate in it. Uh, you know, yeah. Eve Harrington. It's so amazing. I, I want to go to, um, there were a couple of pieces I was going to read about, but I'm, I'm going to skip that. Um, the, well, I'll come back to this, but let's talk about uh, the movies. Let's talk about Citizen Kane and all about Eve. All right. So, in preparation for this interview, I rewatched Kevin and I, my husband and I, rewatched Citizen Kane, and I, for the first time, watched All About Eve. So, I had I came away with two questions uh, and an observation. One is how were they groundbreaking? Because one of the things that I was very struck by was how the voiceovers were done in both of those films, to a very different effect, but the voiceovers was that groundbreaking. But watching All About Eve, to me, I I don't think I've ever seen a movie where every line is incredibly constructed, smart, clever, observing. I mean, I was just... I just could not. I mean, I sound like an idiot because I know it won no, it's fourteen a, yeah, nominations right, right, and right. four for the all you know nominations for all the women that were right. in it and all that. But right. how were they groundbreaking movies? Well, I mean, Citizen Kane was groundbreaking in so many ways, and and a lot of that uh, 
is not Herman. A lot of that is Orson Welles. I think the screenplay was groundbreaking because its structure is, if you study it, it's incredible. Um, it, it, it's the, the, the overlapping, as you say, the overlapping voiceovers and the flashbacks and flash forwards are to this day. That was new. Yeah, that was new. I mean, it, it, they had done certain things like that. Actually, uh, Fury, which was a film that Joe had produced for uh, Fritz Lang, uh, Fury experimented with stuff like that. And there were, you know, it had been done sort of hinted at, but nobody... You know, you start a movie, you flashback, and you catch up to the flashback. That's sort of standard. But but the oh, the the myriad of stops and starts and coming back and seeing things from a different angle, uh, not to mention the newsreel, which was just brilliant. Oh my um, God. And that that's Herman's entirely uh, because he you know he he lived for the newspapers and, and yeah. Henry Luce speak and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, I I think that the screenplay is totally groundbreaking in such a way so that I've seen the movie so many times, but every time I watch, I'm never entirely sure what's going to come next. Really? Yeah, because you, you're sort of like, oh, right, now we're getting to Joseph Cotton sitting in there, you know, with the blanket over his knees. I mean, there's there's so many great things, and the dialogue is great. But I... I Jedediah. Jedediah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, a white dress she had on. I mean, there's it's it's great. Um, all about Eve. That I, you know, Joe came to love and almost patent uh, voiceover and flashbacks. Um, so he he did it himself. He did it in Letter to Three Wives. He did it in Barefoot Contessa. He did it. In, George Saunders did it as Addison. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. He starts it. Um, but. Um, but to me, I agree with you. I mean, I think every line is like a gem. It's so oh. well crafted and it's so theatrical. I want to read And because read it's it. about, yeah, it's a great, it, it is a great, great screenplay. Um, not just structurally, but every line is so good. I think that the structure of Citizen Kane is more revolutionary. Mm-hmm. But, um, but the lines in All About Eve, you know, it's about time the piano realizes it hasn't written the concerto. There's so many great lines. Um, that it's just it's delicious, and um, I think because it's about theater, Joe was able to sort of infuse a theatrical sort of yeah. archness into the dialogue that he gets away and with. And it was tight. Yeah, it's really. It tight. was really tight. Yeah. But after I watched the movie, I did what you know you know I like went down the all about Eve rabbit hole. Uh-huh. I'm like looking up how old was Betty Davis yeah, when. Yeah. She did it. Oh, she was forty-two, and oh, she married Gary Merrill, who yeah. played her plays yeah. her love interest yeah. right after the movie. Oh, so that oh, the movie did that. Yeah, the movie Cel- got them together. Celeste yeah. Holm wasn't talking to Betty. De- I mean, I was. Like, <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I'm like addicted now. That's good. Now I want to go, but I really want to read the screenplay uh-huh. because the language. You know, I'm a I'm a more of a reader than a film person, and to me, the language. Although I re-fell in love with Betty Davis. She's amazing. She is amazing. And and I don't know, you know, originally Claudette Colbert was cast. Which would have been a very different, very different creature. Very different creature. Much less, I mean, I'm sure she could have risen to those sort of theatrical heights that Betty yeah. Davis does. But I don't know that it would have been as... Um, oh, and the as, hair. Yeah, and... yeah, the hair is great. And, uh, I mean, who, and the, the, her face covered in... Uh, that that oil of whatever it is when she's, when she's wa- taking her makeup, her makeup. Like, it's so incredible. Um, 
And I think because Claudette Colbert looks so much like Ann Baxter, it would have been, been it would have been well, it would have been more clear what's happening here. And the relationship between the two women would have been more obviously potentially sibling like. Uh, whereas in in the actual movie it isn't, but as as I, I'm just going to go ahead and say it, yeah, it, you know, it is my belief. Uh, well, it's Jane's belief. It first, is Jane's your belief. Wife, yes, who's my a wonderful novelist. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so my wife Jane Mendelson and I were watching the movie All About Eve. I'm not doing. I'm not sure I'm buying this theory, but you go with it. Yeah. Well, it's certainly <laughs> there are many people who do not buy this theory, including Joe. Um, but, uh, you know, this is a movie about a younger artist who is usurping and taking down the older artist. And the younger is cold, scheming, ambitious, calculating. And the older is beloved and charismatic and self-destructive. So it it is the this theory goes. Hard, hard not it's to. It's hard not to think, well, maybe Joe unconsciously is drawing on like, his relationship. Like, screw you, Herman. Yeah, is drawing on his relationship between... Uh, with Herman in in writing the screenplay, it doesn't mean he was consciously thinking about it, but th- those those were impulses, I believe, and and feelings that he was drawing on when he wrote the screenplay. But Nick, ironically, yeah. the film is more sympathetic to the self destructive totally, person totally. than to the yeah. you know than to Eve. Yeah, if that's Joe. Yeah, no. Well, Joe's a brilliant artist. I mean, I think that he first of all he denied that the. These were autobiographical okay. impulses. All right, um, and I think maybe if he had, he would have gotten messed up and not written such a great movie. Um, no, I think also he was the younger brother who loved and idolized his older brother when he was growing up, and, and, that and stuck Herman with defended him. him against Franz and and you know stuck up for Joe and 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 you know would fight Franz bitterly while Joe hid in the closet, terrified that that his father was going to, you know, tear his brother's head off. Yeah. And and Herman didn't have his head torn off. He gave as good as he got and protected his brother. And, and so Joe loved Herman for much of his life uh, and only later realized, well, gee, this guy, he's got a lot of problems and I can't be like that. I don't want to drink. I don't want to gamble. Um, I'm going to take my career seriously and stop biting the hand that feeds me and stop insulting people and throwing up at dinner parties and and all the things that Herman did that made him so beloved, but also self-destructive. So I think it's very complicated. Um, but I do think that Joe had a huge heart and did love Herman, and as he loved uh, Margot Channing, Betty Davis. But but let's pivot because right. you open the book uh. with a very very unflattering picture of Joe. Yeah. And so I'm a. I'd like you to ask ask you to share that story, and then why'd you open with that? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a good. I know it's a good opening. <laughs> you good you've opening. got all the. I got it. I got it. But why? Uh, because it was the inciting incident for the book, for me to write the book. It was the mystery. It was Rosebud. Okay, well, so know, tell the story, and then tell us how that was the string you pulled for. Yeah. So, as I said before, I grew up with these very cartoon-like ideas of who these two guys were. And so when, in 1988, as a young man, my dad, uh, or I was called by my dad. Uh, I hate to have a dangling modifier on a <laughs> podcast about books. Uh, my dad calls me up and says, hey, you know, they're honoring Uncle Joe at the French consulate, your Uncle Joe, at the French consulate. Do you want to go watch? They're giving him an award. And I thought... 
the guy who did Barefoot Contessa. I, I saw Cleopatra. that. Cleopatra. Yeah, Cleopatra. All right, I'll go. I mean, you know, the French, you know, Jerry Lewis. I mean, so, you know, I was such a snob and arrogant little twit. Um, but I went. And I hadn't met Joe more than once or twice, and certainly not since my mom's funeral 13 or 14 years earlier. And he was great. He was warm and, and loving and funny and self-deprecating. And, and, and he reminded me of my Uncle Frank, who I love. And, and I just was like, I don't understand. Why, why did we never see this guy? Why, why, and who, he lived right in New York. Yeah, we lived an hour away, and, and we just never saw him. So that is when my dad tells me the story that begins the book, which is that in 1958, um, my mother was 20, and... She had sort of periodically, and and her great uncle Joe, or Uncle Joe, had been a great uncle, a terrific uncle, and it put met her, his uh, met his commitment to Herman, yeah, paid for college, paid for college, sent her to Europe, grand yeah. tour, the whole thing, and and been terrific. And when she was first starting out her life in New York, he she would come over and sort of be a kind of hostess for him at his dinner parties when his wife wasn't up to it. His wife. Uh, Rosa Stradner had been an actress and, and a very frustrated actress who did not become Greta Garbo and, and instead became a sort of frustrated housewife. And, uh, and they had a very tempestuous relationship. So one afternoon, Joe calls up my mom and says, you know, I can't reach Rosa up at Mount His Kisco, yeah. uh, up at Mount Kisco. Uh, why don't you come up and let's drive up and, and see what's going on? So this was a Saturday, and, and my mom, whatever, finished shopping. And then uh, they drove up to Mount Kisco, which is an hour away, and they get to the house. And Joe says, eh, check upstairs. I'll, I'll look down here. And so she goes up and finds the dead body of her aunt, who has committed suicide. And I think it took a while. It took a, a few years for her to realize Wait a minute. He knew. He knew. Or if he didn't know, he suspected. And if he suspected, why is he sending his 20-year-old niece into that situation? Yeah. Um, and and so she felt used and manipulated and, and abused by that. And, you know, when I was 23 and I heard that story, I thought, oh, what an asshole. All right, fine. So that's why we never saw him. Uh, and it took me a long time to realize, well, wait a minute. Okay, maybe. But what what drives a man to that? I mean, was he so competitive mm-hmm. with Herman that five years after the guy has died, uh, drunk himself into an early grave, you're so angry or so, still so— You're taking it you're out st- on— That you're going to take it out on your niece? Or am I—maybe that's totally wrong, and maybe it's just innocent. And he was, like, nervous, and he just wanted some company on the ride, and he thought, you know, she probably stuck her head in the oven. I'll check the kitchen. You know, I mean, it, there's a lot of— Possibilities. There's a lot of possibilities. It's a lot more complicated than I, as a 23-year-old, thought. Um, But that is where I begin the book because that was the incident that set me on the journey of thinking, wait a minute, who are these two guys? What what is this relationship? Who was Franz to have set them on this competitive path? What does all this competition do to a person? Um, And is it really fair to compare? think that everyone else is an idiot who you have to compete with? Or is maybe the competition itself what turns you into an idiot? Mm -hmm. Um, So all of those things came from that first scene, which, yes, it's true. (laughs) It doesn't make Joe look good. It's it's tough to come back from that if you're Joe. Yeah. but I, I, you know, I, I came to love Joe uh, writing the book in Did a way. Did you? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
um, far more than. But than I want to see if I can alive. find. Um, well, and you rarely saw him, right? Yeah, we never saw him. I, and I, I don't think I saw him again after the French consulate. I saw him one other time. There was a Lincoln Center thing. And again, he was warm and lovely to me. And then uh, he died, and I went to his funeral. And that was it. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. If you're like me, you love the idea of redirecting your space. You might browse Pinterest, you might watch some home decorating shows, and just everywhere you go, you're daydreaming about your new decor. But wouldn't it be great if you could see your interior design ideas come to life? Give Redecor a try. Redecor is an interior decorating mobile game that's so much fun to play. Redecor is a great creative outlet that lets your imagination run wild. Experiment with different colors, materials, and textures as you design room after room. I think my favorite part about the game is just expressing my own creativity as I participate in each challenge. Usually I play maybe first thing in the morning, maybe late at night, uh, occasionally in between meetings, just when the time is right. I'd say what makes Redecor really different is that while it's fun to play, it actually is beneficial into everything I want to do to my own home. And that's what makes Redecor a home design app and a mobile game in one. It's a place to play, explore designs, find inspiration, and connect with others who share your passion for home decor. The graphics are so realistic and detailed, and you're able to customize every piece of the room. They've even got style guides with tips, tricks, and advice for decorating. So test your creativity, enter your designs and challenges, and let other players be the judge. Read the design brief and impress other fellow read decorators by choosing the best combinations of color, textures, and materials out of a variety of options. Submit your best design and reap the rewards if you come out on top. So practice your interior design skills and express your creativity with Redecor. Download Redecor for free on the App Store or Google Play Store. That's R-E-D-E-C-O-R on the App Store or Google Play Store. See you there. I wonder if you would, I thought this was really interesting. Joe, this is at your parents' wedding. Mm. And Joe escorted your mom down the aisle to the rabbi after she, after he told them to, like, turn around that the bride yeah, and groom should right. be facing uh, yeah. the audience and who wants to see the rabbi. Yeah. Nobody, we're not here to see you. Turn around. We want to see your back and we want to see the bride and groom. Yeah. yeah. And, and Joe was not. Um, maybe this is not the fair description the way you... He wasn't as enthusiastic as jo, Josie would have liked. Josie's your mom's name about Peter, your dad, Peter no. Davis. No, Um Years later, she would describe her husband, who himself employed a jaw clench, not unlike her uncle's, as always looking like he had just stepped from a bracing shower, ready to move forward into the world to attack to achieve. And of course, Johanna Mankiewicz knew that some people weren't in fact like that. And this was a line that, so you wrote, it's not a quote. Some people are happy with what they have. They don't push and prod and seek always the next big thing, the next accomplishment, book, novel, assignment, job, movie. They take what is given to them and form their, and form their lives cheerfully and without complaint. So how defining do you think Joe being that way, and maybe Herman, 
was to you? Did that, because it's a theme through the book. And were you surprised about discovering that or understanding that? Or was that always clear to you? Well, it wasn't clear to me that everybody didn't have that. Ah. Uh, I, I assumed that, that that's the way the that's, that's the way it. the world works, and of course you'd think that. And yeah, I mean, the, for the longest time, I didn't see the problem with Franz saying where are the three points. Where are the I was three like, points? yeah, where are the three points? My father did that. Yeah, and 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 it's not, you know, Franz. I think did it without humor, but I think that. Um, no, I assumed, yeah, you compete. What's the problem with competing? And you try to be the best. What else would you try to be? Yeah. And yeah, what's the next thing? What's the next assignment? What's the next job? What's the next movie? What are you, you know, what are you working on? I mean, you know, that's the stuff of life, right? Yeah. And it took me a long time uh, to f- realize, wait a minute, <laughs> there's actually a perennial wisdom that speaks to something deeper, deeper. than that. Um, and there are people who understand that and don't do that uh, and, and live their lives cheerfully and happily. And it's in my mother's book. My mother wrote a novel called Life Signs. And you can tell in the book that she was grappling with the same issue. And there's a – I think I excerpt it uh, at the start yeah. of one of the parts where she realizes that, yeah, and she's going to let go of this and just be happy. Um, and so I – yeah, I think that, but it, it's you know it takes a long time if you come from Franz Mankiewicz um, or 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 frankly Peter Davis. You know, I think my dad had this a similar Same kind thing of thing. From his yeah. father, Frank. Well, I don't I don't know. I haven't actually talked to my dad that much about. Let's do what, that. Let's do that <laughs> next time. Let's take him down. Yeah, well, to... let's, let's do. I mean, I yeah. I I, I think that. Um, but I think it's it's a you know it's the American way. I mean it's not it's not just uh, you know hardworking immigrants. I mean I think it's a lot of people feel like yeah what have you done for me lately? So Nick, speaking of uh, your mom's book Life Signs, so John Mankiewicz had sent it to me, um, which I and I I devoured it. I mean I just I think it's such a fantastic book and. Uh, you know, I'm like dying to see it republished. Like mm. to me, she was Nora Ephron first. Mm. You know, in reading. Well, yeah. Well, to me, uh, don't get me started. Yeah. Okay? I mean, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I totally so, agree. So yeah. the question, Nick, I would logically have for you: You were nine when your mom died. Yeah. To what extent did reading that book inform you about your mother? Or did it? Uh, no, I think it definitely did. Um, I didn't read it that often. Um, mm-hmm. But it, I always found it useful and helpful when I did. It's Be- such a great book. It, yeah. it, I'm going to say it. I, I just love that book. Well, the voice is so strong oh, that fabulous. you feel her yeah. presence. So you do get to know her. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what makes it, I think, what makes it great is her voice and, and it comes through. Um but it's you know it it's, it's you know it's complicated. <laughs> yeah. 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 Of course it is. So that makes me uh, ask you uh, this question: Is how is the book you set out to write different from the book that we have? Well, I think I would answer that by saying 
I never wanted to write this book. Mm-hmm. I wasn't going to write this book. This book was going to be written while I didn't think about it. I mean, you did spend 20 years, yeah. well, like, working on it. Yeah, so what happened was I... I mean, first of all, with relatives like these, you decide, well, I'm not a writer, that's for sure, because mm-hmm. I can't compete with this guy. This guy, Herman, he was, you know, wrote the greatest movie of all time and drank himself into an early grave because he hated what he did. So you shouldn't probably be a writer because you're never going to be able to compete with this guy who was self-destructive anyway. Yeah. Uh, not to mention Joe and my mother and—, and so, and your father and, and your father. grandfather. Well, yeah, my father is a filmmaker, yeah. and so I decided I'll be a filmmaker, you know, and, and went into filmmaking. And, and uh, then in the spring of 2002, yes, 20 years ago, I went to American Masters and I said, hey, I have this theory. I don't think I credited my wife in this meeting. I have this theory about All About Eve, and I told the woman at American Masters, Susan Lacey, Here's who Joe was. Here's who Herman was. I think there'd be a great documentary here about these two guys. You get the clips. And she was like, great. What a terrific idea. Let's do a little development deal. She gave me a teeny bit of money. I started researching and interviewing my cousins and my uncles in audio only. We didn't. She didn't give me enough money for cameras. Yeah. And, um, and then that Christmas, I was at a party and mentioned this to an agent, a friend of mine who was an agent, happens to be a book agent. And he said, well, do a companion book. And I thought, yes, a companion book. Ah. I won't really be writing it. It'll write itself while I'm doing the documentary. And sure enough, the documentary goes away. Clips are too expensive. And I'm left with this book contract and this book I did not want to write. But I couldn't walk away because you can't walk away from a project like this. You can't walk away from your family. And... um, I, you know, if it had been the Cohen brothers or something, I might have been able to, you know, find the hundreds of dollars I'd gotten for the advance and give it back. Um, but so I started work on the book, and it was very boring. It was very, very dull. It was like the first draft was uh, like a Wikipedia entry about mm-hmm. these two guys because I was trying to be objective and, and you know, be impartial. And I... But it was your, fa- your grandfather and your yeah. But and, and I I it just was not good at all. And then I had this what I thought was it, it was it was an insight, but I took it too far, which was I thought okay, it's not going to be a biography of these two guys. It'll be a biography of three guys, you know, Herman, Joe, and Nick. Mm. And so I wrote my story into it, and I wove together w- with all these fascinating to me parallels mm-hmm. between their careers and my career well, of course. And all of this stuff and I gave it to my and I you know finished it and gave it to my editor and she said okay this is what you had to do in order to write it now take yourself out of it I'm not interested in Nick alongside Herman and Joe so I took myself out of it after a year of trying not I mean, to yeah. and and I read it one afternoon and I saw aha that's it I, the book now has a voice it has a perspective this is but not, it's about them. And it's about them, but it's coming from me. And it, it's important to me that it's it doesn't, you know, it's not a dual biography. It's a dual portrait. It's I my loved, I love using that, that word. Well, because it's my version of those two guys. And other people can and have. You know, David Fincher did a movie. That's his version of Herman and Joe, too. And, and, and I think that's great, you know. So I'm not pretending that this is the only way to see these guys. I'm saying this is the way I see these guys. I've done a lot of research. 
I believe I'm right in a sort of holistic way about who Joe was, who Herman was, what their relationship was. But other people can come to their own opinions if they want to do the research or, or just read this book and then rewrite it. So, so Nick, the logical question, which has four parts, uh, is how did the process of writing the book change what you thought of Joe or Herman? How did it change what you thought of your mother? Mm. How did it change how you thought about yourself? Well... I know that's a small question. Is, uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, Nick, no, and yes. <laughs> I want an answer. I, you know, that's a great question. These are all great questions, Roxanne. You're, you're a very uh, astute reader. I, I, I think that it uh, it deepened my relationships with all of those four people. Yeah. Uh, in particular, uh, well, all of them. I mean, Herman. I I went in loving Herman, so Herman had the advantage going in. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't say that I I, but I came to I came to really I mean I would I would get very frustrated with Herman sometimes, which had never happened to me before, because you're like you're out there and you're working on these movies that are now considered classics, and you think the work is beneath you. Like I, mm. it's just so tragic now tragic is the right word yeah i understand that the people were not he was brilliant and so i understand that people were not but as, he was also as, arrogant yeah or a snob he was, he was a, snob. a snob he was he a was snob a, he, i don't know yeah. if he was arrogant yeah. he was a snob yeah he certainly thought he was better than they were and he probably was i mean yeah. but but it didn't help him to think that way and um and so i i i think joe had the farthest to come you know, in my mind, like, and yeah. and he did. I think that I I came to have enormous sympathy for Joe, even though he behaved badly and was a terrible husband, at least to the first two wives. And he wasn't. He was a good husband to his third Rosemary. wife. Rosemary. Yeah. Um, and I think that that Joe, you know, the final twenty years of his life were not happy ones professionally, but he had settled into a kind of peace. And ultimately, I think he really more did. than your grandfather yeah. ever did. Oh certainly. yeah, yeah, yeah. And certainly at the end of his life, in the final couple of months, he really, I think, he did reconcile with himself and with his father, and and came to accept, hey, I did some good things, you know, which mm-hmm. is which he had never done before. Which is a lot if yeah. you come from that kind of family. Yeah. Yeah. that's not easy. Yeah, and in in what, but but even as late as the late '80s, he's getting called from the Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania, which is where he grew up. Um, you know, film festival, and they say, "Hey, we want to do a film festival honoring you." And 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 he's like, "Oh, great!" And your brother Herman will do a Herman and Joe, and he's absolutely not. You know, and he's like, "Come on, man! Like, just share it." It's like if Paul McCartney yeah. said, "No, no, no, we're not doing any Beatles stuff. It's just just Paul McCartney now." You know, it's like that kind of of like, but but you were a Mankiewicz, and Herman was your brother, and you did love him. So why not? You know, why not say, "Gosh." Unconsciously, maybe Herman played a role in my writing all about Eve. That that only makes the movie richer, you know. But no, absolutely not. He told his biographer, "No, Herman had nothing to do with it. I had nothing to do with Citizen Kane." Like, come on, man. Like it that that and and for someone who cared so much about psychology, I mean, he got. I mean, he was really into analysis. Yeah, and all he of got that. Judy Garland into analysis, and and it, he cared so much about it that it's weird that when it you know, came to himself, he was unwilling to look at himself. So that's how my relationship with Joe changed and deepened. Um, And then my mom, 
you know, there were moments when I felt like because I was listening to her voice on tape, which oh. I had, I mean, I was intense. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and hearing her unwrap, uh, you know, the cellophane from a box of cigarettes where you're just like, oh, I didn't even know I knew that sound. And now I'm hearing yeah, it, and yeah. I, and it's her. That's crazy. And the drag on the cigarette, and also her voice, which had a, I, I don't. It's almost not patrician, but there was something like you could you could you could hear the Wellesley in her voice, you know. Yeah. And so that was very intense. And then reading her book and being, you know, excerpting her book, there were times when I felt like she's my most reliable interviewee for the sections that deal with yeah. her life. I'm collaborating with her and, and it was very intense feeling. wow yeah um and then nick how cool is that it was very cool i mean i you know and so my relationship with myself i would say you know here's here's a thing you didn't want to do that was a homework assignment for 20 years hanging over your head yeah and well you finished it yeah it's pretty good like that i feel like good i, I mean i i hope people like it and read it and accept it was it. fat i mean we didn't good. get to a lot of the you know, like I loved learning about F. Scott Fitzgerald being a yeah. crummy screenwriter and a great, yeah. you know, as opposed to. Yeah, I mean, that's another reason Joe had sort of a checkered. Uh, he fired, uh, he F. fired Scott. F. Scott Fitzgerald and he worried for a long time that that was going to be on his epitaph. You know, that he's the guy who fired F. Scott Fitzgerald, who in turn called him monkey bitch. So. You know, I love that chapter. Yeah, yeah, monkey bitch. It's that was a. I was very happy. So speaking of monkey bitch, <laughs> yeah. Um, I am really taken about this idea that you ended up collaborating with your mom. That's 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 pretty cool. Well, it's a little uh, oogie boogie. But no, but I'll go yeah, with it. Yeah. I like it. Uh, yeah, I'm going to go with it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I've really, read her book. Okay, so good. Yeah. yeah, I'm going to go yeah. with that. Okay, fine. Um, so there, you were on a panel uh, with uh, three of your cousins recently uh, about the like benefits and burdens of being a Mankiewicz. Um, I actually wasn't on that panel. Oh, you weren't? I wasn't on that panel because my last name is not Mankiewicz. Oh, that's right. So, so, so John. Oh, that's and, right. Yeah, it was yeah. John, Josh, Ben, and Alex. Alex yeah. Right? Yeah. Alex was Joe's daughter from his third marriage. Right. Right? Right. That's right. So on being a Mankiewicz, because right. you're a Davis. Yeah. But you're a Mankiewicz. Yeah. And be, just not by yeah. name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what... You have that being a Mankiewicz, plus you have, as we talked about, you have your dad who's won awards and your grandfather on the Davis side um, who was very accomplished screenwriter. Does it feel like more like a benefit or a burden? I mean, do you does it feel like a lot to live up to? Does it feel like an advantage? It's obviously a great gene pool. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is a great gene pool. Uh, it's certainly a, a great gene pool. It is a lot to live up to. I think that— Did it um, make you nervous to— I think it was so baked in that I didn't notice it for a long time. Really? And then yeah. it sort of woke up to it in and felt enormous pressure. Um, yeah, and and then had to overcome that. And I mean, Alex like, is the only one that uh, you know she's living in Australia doing something, but the rest of you are pretty tangentially, if not directly, involved. Well, Alex is a graphic artist, and 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 her, her, you know, yeah. is which is a kind of writing itself. Yeah, no, I mean, a lot of us are in the quote unquote family business, which to me is like the gene pool, and you're all yeah. like wildly talented. 
Well, thank you um, for my part. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's 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 odd. I think it's— I was talking about Jack. John. <laughs> oh, and Jack. I mean, to say nothing of Jack, the next generation. Yeah. Jack's John's, my hero. I yeah. love that kid. Yeah, he's great. Um, this is Jack Mankiewicz, who we'll be hearing about in the future. Jack will be hearing about in the future. Yeah. And Jack and I have worked together uh, quite a lot, and he's yeah. great. Um, so, uh, very talented editor, among other things, documentary editor. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I— I think it's probably a benefit from the gene perspective uh, more than any other. I don't see any other benefits to it. You know, I think Tom used to say, like, yeah, your name gets you in the door sometimes for meetings, um, but then you have to produce, you know. Yeah. And if At you can't produce, end, it's like then you're— It'll be short-lived being yeah, in the door. Yeah, Mankiewicz, Schmankiewicz. Like, you know, this is a crappy screenplay, so you're done. Yeah. Um, so when you're writing about public figures, you're writing about family uh, members, how did you balance having the book have integrity and and worrying about how family members would take what you were saying about either them or their uncle or their father or their I mean, were you thinking about that when you were writing the book? Did you think about it? What's been the reaction afterwards from from your family members? Crickets. Crickets. No, I'm crickets. kidding. I'm kidding. Not really. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. This is a talking group. Don't tell me crickets. <laughs> no, the reaction. I know been, them better. <laughs> yeah, the reaction has been great. Um, uh, totally great. I I didn't think about it, and you know, for when you're working on something for this long, it was such an albatross that it was embarrassing when any of them would ask me about it because yeah. for years it yeah. felt like you're not really doing this, are you? And I thought this is a joke. I mean, I have this contract, and I. I don't think it's ever going to happen. So, you know. On your tombstone, it'll say almost. (laughs) Yeah, like wait to the next draft. So it really took so long. And when I finally woke up and realized, hey, I've got it, then I was more excited about that. Yeah. And put put aside any worries about, well, what if no one likes it in the family or they have issues with A, B, or C? And there have been a few. There have been some small things that people have, have, you know, members of the family have said, well, I think you did X, Y, and Z. So. And you're saying it's your opinion. It's yeah. not. It's it's not as well, if. Well, sure. I mean, that's that. Yeah, it's a portrait. Write your own damn book. I mean, you know. I mean, if I you, love that term. I loved that you used portrait because I don't know whose quote this is. I I should look it up, but I love the notion when you uh, when a memoirist writes something. And somebody starts saying, no, it was 10 o'clock, not 2 o'clock, and mom was wearing green, not black. And the comment is, this is the way it sits in my memory. Right. The, right. I, I, the integrity is to my memory. Right. Not right. the integrity necessarily to the facts. And I think using well, that's the term it. it's the facts. portrait. Yeah, it's the facts versus the truth. You know, are, are, exactly. You know, this is, this is my version of the truth. And it's a portrait. And so you can see the brush strokes. And you know there's an artist behind it who did this painting. And you're not looking at a photograph that was taken by a security camera. Yeah. Um, it, that's, a good, that's a good metaphor, Nick. Oh, thank you. I'll, I'll have to do it for the, the next edition <laughs> afterward. <laughs> so to, let, me, let me close with this. Uh, this is a big book with a um, lot of threads to the story. You could read it as a 
filmmaker, you could read it as a film buff, you could read it as a historian, you could read it for the pop psychology, for the memoir of everyone. What do you hope the reader feels or comes away with after having read the book? I hope that readers will really be interested and taken with these two men mm. and and be interested in these stories, the stories of their lives, of the people who surrounded them, um, and and come away with, you know, they were storytellers, and this is a story, and there's tons of stories in the book. And I didn't realize until it was done that that was sort of what I most wanted. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I do think that's what I, I want people to come away and say, well, I, I feel like I know these guys. Now, you don't even have to like them, but I feel like I know these guys now, and I want to go watch their movies, and I want to learn more about them. Yeah. Uh, and see if this guy in his portrait, if he got it right. You know, it's entirely possible someone could watch, you know, read this book and then say, well, I want to watch the Fincher movie now and watch the Fincher movie and think, oh, I, I like the Fincher movie more. I, I like that guy. That's a different mm -hmm. guy. That's not the same Herman Mankiewicz that, that Nick Davis was writing about. Now, to those of us in the family, the Fincher movie, whatever its merits, is about somebody's grandfather, but it's not about ours. Mm. Ooh, I like that. And that's courtesy John Mankiewicz. Okay, well... <laughs> You, you're all, you know, it's very hard for those people who are listening to hang out with any of the Mankiewiczes because of the wit. I mean, it's just, which I know now you you all inherited. Herman and Joe were as good with the quips. But I, I think about when I'm with you or Jack or or John and, you know, that sly little quiet wit that's just you know, lacerate <laughs> to whatever is that. being talked That's about. Good. But the question is, where did it come from? Because it didn't come from Franz, you know. And so there is this mystery. Well, like these two guys, like was was it their mom? Was she just mocking Franz without anybody realizing See, it the I whole want, time? I want her. I want Johanna Mankiewicz's. I want somebody to write that, like yeah. to do some homework. Yeah. Because the other book that I think could be written is about Sarah. Because yeah. there's a letter in there that, that Sarah writes to Herman saying, yeah, you stick it to Joe. You yeah. know, you let him know yeah. that you're, you're like the big dog. Yeah, like, that little... She's not like some little housefrau at home saying, oh, Herman. Yeah. No, no, no. No. You, you stick, you show him your big contract. <laughs> exactly. It's like, whoa, go so on. He's a yeah. little pisher. Yeah. <laughs> I think she used that yeah, language. She, yeah, she called him a pisher. Yeah. That's <laughs> no, good. Goma had an edge. I mean, she, had, she really did have an yeah. edge. Yeah. Um, so, Nick, I would say uh, to your... Um, your thoughts on a reader. When I was reading uh, the book, I came away with a comparison. One of my favorite events that we've ever had at R.J. Joya's was Honor Moore, who wrote a book about her grandmother, Margaret Singer Sargent, and Helen Epstein, who wrote a, a, a book about her grandmother who had been a dressmaker in Prague uh, before World War II. But their grandmothers were seen as Margaret Singer Sargent, a drunk, mm. instead of a depressive, brilliant artist. Mm. And Helen Epstein's grandmother was known as a victim of the Holocaust and not a brilliant. And I thought about their books a lot when I read this because I thought I have a real sense of these men as 
complicated humans who were wildly talented, made me more interested in them, made me, you know, now I'm going to spend years watching all their films. So, you know, I would say, at least from a from a uh, population of one, mission accomplished. Oh, that's great. Thank yeah. you. So, Nick, thank you. We've been talking with Nick Davis, the author of Competing with Idiots, Herman and Joe Mankiewicz, A Dual Portrait. Nick, thanks so much. Thank you, Roxanne. This was great. Fun. Really fun. <laughs> thanks for joining us on Just the Right Book. Uh, please tell all your friends about it. You can... Uh, Find us anywhere that you listen to podcasts on Spotify or iTunes. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. Produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.